Hey everybody, welcome to Go Bold, your home for aerospace and defense news and views from around the world. I'm your host, Jody Atariwala, and I can't think of a better guest or subject than someone who's reaching for the stars. And I literally mean reaching for the stars. So today we are privileged to have on the podcast someone who truly exhibits the right stuff. And yes, that's a shout out to the 1980s movie about test pilots and the original Mercury astronauts. We make that connection because my guest was a CF-18 fighter pilot with the Royal Canadian Air Force. He's a test pilot, and he's now one of Canada's newest astronauts. So to set the stage for this episode, let me first play a short clip of NASA's countdown for the Apollo 11 mission to the moon. It's a classic. 20 seconds and counting. T-minus 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 12, 11, 10, 9. Ignition sequence starts. 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. So the space part of this journey begins in earnest in 2016, when the Canadian Space Agency went through a rigorous process to select astronaut candidates. Jenny City Gibbons and Joshua Kutrick were ultimately selected to participate in NASA's basic training program for astronauts, which lasted two years and culminated with their graduation in 2020. So now that the appropriate foundation has been laid, it is my distinct pleasure to welcome to the podcast one of the world's newest astronauts, Joshua Kutrick. Josh, thanks for being on Go Bold, and congratulations on your graduation. Hi, thanks for having me. It's great to be on the program, and I'm looking forward to talking to you a bit. Thanks, Josh. So I've been fascinated by flight for the better part of my life, and I suspect the same goes for you. So what prompted you to follow a path in aviation? Yeah, uh, great question. How I got hooked on the the aviation bug um, initially, I'm glad that I did. I think that it Aviation's always been something in my life that has given me a lot of uh, motivation, of course, and a lot of focus. It's it's led to the studies that I did. It's led to the professions, that, uh, my career, and it, it's led to me as a test pilot, and, and I think in large part to me working for the space agency now as well. Um, if I go all the way back, I can't really remember a day not wanting to fly airplanes. It's something that's been with me all along. I think it probably comes fundamentally from two things. I always remember being very curious, and I always remember really wanting to explore. And, you know, that started as a kid, but as I grew older, that that led very quickly into the air. The air was someplace where um, I I was very curious by nature about the physics and the engineering that made airplanes fly. And I I just thought that that was a a great way, uh, you know, maybe as the best way to explore while being on planet Earth was to leave the surface and go as high as you can. So it really came as a kid, I think, uh, wanting to explore and and being curious led to an interest in flying. I went for a a flight as a real young child, maybe around grade uh, two or three in a real small airplane, and that kind of hooked it in, and it's been with me ever since. That's awesome. I'm sure, you know, your story is one shared by many around the world. And uh, yeah, I I think you've made the best of it. That's for sure. 
Um, so please share a bit about your career as a fighter pilot. Uh, you know, what aspect of your time in the Royal Canadian Air Force stands out most to you? And I'll ask you to kind of focus specifically on your time as a fighter pilot as opposed to a test pilot, because that's going to be my follow-up question. Yeah, I'm, uh, I have very fond memories of my time as a fighter pilot, and uh, those, were, those were days that uh, I really enjoyed. I feel quite lucky, as I say frequently, to have found something that um, I enjoy as much as I do. And flying fast, high-performance airplanes like the CF-18, flying it as a fighter pilot, if I think back to the years that I was doing that, I mean work, work in quotation marks was something that really, really was enjoyable for me. Uh, it's something that I could be really passionate about. It's something that I could apply myself to um, all my efforts to. You know, I, I never even thought for a minute about how many hours I was working or all the travel and all the time away and all that. I mean, I just loved what I was doing. Um, sort of the particulars of it, I started training. I've been flying, you know, for uh, over 20 years, but I started flight training with the military in, uh, let's see, probably about 2002, and I, I was pretty lucky. I went through it quite fast. I didn't actually know that I was going to be a fighter pilot. I was actually on the fence. I thought I might want to fly a tactical helicopter, and near the end of some of that basic training, uh, a couple sort of old, long-in-the-tooth instructors uh, suggested they thought that I would, it would, I would be well-suited to it, and so I started thinking about the fighter pilot thing, and I ended up uh, asking to go that way and, and getting my wishes and um, very, very fortunate for all that. I finished the basic F-18 course in 2007 and from there I went to Bagotville. I worked for 425 Squadron, uh, the Alouettes. It's a, a famous fighter squadron in, at, out in uh, the Saguenay, Lac-Saint-Jean area. And I flew with people like you were talking about even before the podcast. Forrest Rock was start getting his start out there along with me at the same time. Um, and we had a great time. The thing about fighter pilot life is that, you know, there's, there's just so much to learn. So when you show up, you're technically a qualified F-18 pilot, uh, but you're actually not really qualified to do much. So not unlike my current pr profession, you just start training, and you train, and you train, and you train, and then slowly you start to be trusted with real jobs. And we would fly um, for NORAD a lot with uh, Defense of North America. We would fly uh, for NATO. We would fly a lot of a lot of time in the United States working with the U.S. Air Force, a, a real close ally. Um, and then we also got into deployments. Um, I deployed to Afghanistan in 2009, actually not flying the F-18, but in a, in a forward air controlling air liaison capacity. I, I basically lived with the battle group over there for seven months controlling uh, fighters for them. Um, and then I also deployed to Libya in the very opening stages of that conflict in 2011. So I was in Bagotville. You know, I think about my fighter pilot years as sort of 2007 to 2011. Uh, four jam-packed years, always away. Most of those years I would average about 220, 230 days away from my home. Uh, but just an absolutely amazing set of years, very rich experiences wonderful to be able to fly the airplane all over the world and, and even more wonderful to be able to work with the the people who make those teams up you know that the royal canadian air force is home to a lot of very talented individuals uh, that go into to making fighter operations happen and it was just a privilege to be able to work with them 
No, I'm, I'm very glad to hear that. And uh, funny enough, I may have actually seen you in a cockpit uh, in Trapani, Italy during the Libya campaign because I was out there covering that story. And it was at the time when Colonel Kenny was in command of the detachment. So yeah, it, it could be entirely possible that I saw you taxi by me while I was shooting. It pictures. could be. I flew yeah. a, lot of, a lot of missions out of uh, Trapani. So. Yeah, yeah. Very interesting. And uh, talk to me about what combat's like because now you're taking all your training and you're actually putting it into use yeah it's uh, and you know I, I think as I've said there's parallels to this the business that I'm, I'm trying to do now in the in the space industry and in that um, fighter pilot life is something that consists mostly of training it's training a very difficult training uh, training for an event uh, for circumstances that uh, hopefully you never encounter because combat you know having to go and fly for real under a UN mandate is it might, it might appear on the outside as something that would be professionally very satisfying to us and in a sense it is because like you say we're taking um, a decade of training and preparation and we're putting it into use but of course the circumstances that are, are causing us to be there in the first place are, are not a good set of circumstances they involve uh, thousands hundreds of thousands of people going through more suffering than, than most of us in Canada will ever be able to, to imagine um, and so there's that also very real aspect to it as well um, I think, though, that it, if I, you know, let me think back, and I actually, we were there very early, so Canada was was into that combat zone as one of the, the very initial allied uh, countries. I remember showing up at Trapani Air Base, there was no one there yet. Uh, Canada was one of the very first people to touch down, and we flew some of the, the very, very initial missions. I think... Um, I don't recall exactly. I was I flew on the first Canadian mission into hostile territory, but that was among the very first missions of this new at the time UN mandate to to go into Libya and enforce this no-fly zone. So the stress factor was really high, um, and the chaos factor was really high. There wasn't a lot of information. There wasn't a lot of uh, control mechanisms set up. The whole airspace structure. Uh, it was kind of a little bit uh, chaotic. It felt a bit like the Wild West on those initial days, we took off, we headed south across the Mediterranean, and we would basically reach a part of, you know, a line kind of halfway across the Med where the, the civilian air traffic system would end. And because everything south of that they had just been sealed off from any kind of civilian traffic, and they would just say to us, you know, you're on your own from this point on. Uh, call us on your way back. And we would press south of that, and we'd start making contact with, at that time, American allies. I remember one of our first calls was to, to an aircraft carrier down below to try to get rid into the situation and figure out what was going on and, and where we had to go and how we had to employ. So it was a high-stress, it was a high-risk environment. Um, but I think as testament to the training, uh, we all felt very confident with that. Um, the stakes were very, very high, but I don't remember feeling scared. I don't remember feeling intimidated. I remember feeling proud to be there and, and confident that we were going to be able to do, to do the job well. That's fascinating. I guess you're just laser focused on the mission ahead. You are. And, and you know, the, the training that, that fighter pilots do is, is very real. It's, it's, um, you know, it's not as real as doing the real thing, of course, but it is, it is in itself high risk. It's dangerous. 
and it, it is very high stress over the years. So you sort of um, you learn the technical skills, of course, but another purpose of the training, I think, is to, to somewhat indoctrinate you um, to the atmosphere in general, to that high-risk, high-consequence atmosphere so that when it is game day and you are doing it for real, it kind of feels like it's just another training day. And I think if, if as you cross the line into Libya, where you, you're being shot at not by electronic war games and stuff, but by real weapons, if on the day that that happens, if it feels to you like a training event, you know, that, that's a training system that is working perfectly. And we were, I'd say, pretty close to that. It, it, felt, uh, it felt like we were ready. No, I'm very glad to hear that. That's that's excellent, and I, I dare say that's exactly the way you want it to go down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is a perfect spot to pause for a quick moment and acknowledge our sponsor, Cubic Mission and Performance Solutions. The fighter pilot training that Josh just spoke about is provided in part by Cubic, who provides air combat maneuvering instrumentation or ACMI. For those that aren't familiar with ACMI, think about the movie Top Gun and where Maverick and Charlie are viewing a screen that recreates what happened in a dogfight. That's the technology that Cubic provides to allied air forces around the world. Fighter pilots train like they fight, so Cubic's technology allows these pilots to debrief in such a way that everyone sees exactly what happened so that everyone gets the most out of each mission. That's just one of the impressive technologies and services that Cubic provides, so we thank them for their support, and we encourage you to learn more about them at cubic.com. Now back to our show. Uh, so let's switch tack now and speak a bit about your time as a test pilot. Uh, what projects that you worked on stand out most to you? Yeah, so I... Um... Let's see. As a test pilot, what projects stood out most to me? I, I equally loved flying as a test pilot on the F-18. You know, even during those years as a fighter pilot, I always had my academic interests in my, my back, back of my head. I knew I wanted to go back into test flying, and I was very fortunate enough to be able to do that. After a lot of studying and, and becoming the test pilot, I went to the, the test center in Cold Lake, the Aerospace Engineering Test Establishment, and I worked uh, mostly F-18 projects. Um, I think that some of, the, some of the ones that stand out to me, we were doing a lot of work at the time to support combat operations overseas, um, particularly in Syria and Iraq. So we were taking weapons um, that the U.S. Navy had used, uh, better weapons that Canada didn't have at the time, and we were involved with integrating those onto the F-18. Um, where some of this work was actually fairly engineering, comp from an engineering perspective, it was complex. We, it hadn't been done before, so uh, it's, a, it's a fairly big deal to take um, a, system, a weapon system that hasn't maybe been integrated onto a particular fighter aircraft and then do that integration yourself, which is what Canada was doing. Um, I was just one person flying the, the test points, doing some of the, the verifications, uh, but that was a very fundamental kind of engineering level project that for someone with my interests was very fulfilling. Um, I also remember doing, I was part of a, a fairly big navigation uh, upgrade to the F-18 where we were kind of taking um, a GPS system, uh, putting it on the airplane. This is a system that uh, control 
controls the airplane. It, it will fly the airplane. Uh, it'll, it'll automatically fly approaches for, uh, on the airplane all the way down in bad weather. So we're integrating this navigation system with the flight control system on the plane and uh, all, all with the purpose of greatly enhancing the capability of the aircraft. Uh, and so it's very, it's fulfilling uh, personally, because I'm working with engineering and flight sciences, uh, but it's also it's very um, it's a, it's a very good feeling to finish projects like that because you know that you're you're helping your buddies out and increasing the capability of the aircraft. Yeah, absolutely, Josh. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm assuming that you're referring to, to weapons like the JDAM. I, I was I was mo- uh, JDAM is did come along. I was mostly involved with GBU-49 Ah, okay. just before we went to JDAM. Ah, okay. Gotcha. And so with GBU, like, I mean, that's obviously been used by the U.S. So is it just that, you know, our, our mission systems in, in the aircraft are different and so therefore required that type of engineering? Yeah, the, the GBU-49, the JDAM has been used on the F-18. The GBU-49 at the time uh, is, is a different family of weapons. It's built by a different company, and it had never flown on a on an F-18. So Canada was, I think, the first Air Force to integrate the GB-49 with the Hornet. Um, and, and yeah, that's, that's a fairly big deal. There's two components to it. There's all the physical flight sciences sort of stuff of putting something with its mass characteristics and profile under the Hornet's wing. Um, but then even probably the, the more challenging part has to do with the, all the electronics of getting the F-18s, bus systems, and weapon systems integrated with the weapon. Uh, of course, it's, it's an extremely smart weapon. Uh, it depends on a, a lot of data to be passed to it um, by the aircraft. And so we're kind of working the, the nuts and bolts out of all that software and, and trying to make sure that uh, we got everything ironed out. And um, it's never, I would add, it's never, it never goes smoothly. Uh, we always find stuff in flight test, uh, big things that are, uh, that are really important. I mean, we, we had some we had some pretty stressful days with GB49 integration. Um, we lost one once, and th- this was this was all safe. I mean, we were doing it in a huge flight test range, uh, but we actually had a weapon uh, due to software and, and the, the config with the F-18. Uh, we, we found what we call in flight test a, a, a cliff, where, where basically the data ended. Uh, no one was able to predict it, and, and the weapon went went sideways. And when these smart weapons decide that they're going to go somewhere else, they, they, they can really travel a long, long ways. And uh, if you believe it, it actually took us a few days to find this particular one. So uh, never a smooth process. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, absolutely. And and yeah, I can believe it. That's a, that's a fascinating story. And I'm actually quite saddened that I wasn't aware of it, because I think it's an interesting story. So I appreciate you sharing that. I think that's very cool. Um, so now I'd be remembering miss at this point if i didn't ask what's your favorite aircraft of all time and, and what's your, and what's the favorite aircraft your favorite aircraft that you've flown yeah my favorite aircraft is the f-18 that's i know uh, that's not the most exciting answer because everybody expects it and i've i've several thousand hours there but i have flown, i've flown i guess probably about 40 different types of planes I found most of the the fourth generation fighters in the U.S. inventory. Um, so if I, and to, to honestly take the F-18 and compare it to uh, F-15, um, 
either the Air to Air's Charlie or the Strike Eagle to compare it to the, the Viper, the F-16, or some of these other things, um, I do honestly believe that, that the F-18 is, is the perfect kind of jack-of-all-trades. It's a perfect fit for Canada right now, especially the Canadian F-18, the way we've modified it and changed it and updated it and added new systems like the GBU-49. We've really made it into something that for kind of the role that Canada's asked to play, which is sort of this, you know, middle of the road, you're not the very first air-to-air fighters into a combat zone, but you're, you're pretty close behind. You have to have a good air-to-air capability and a really good air-to-ground capability. Um, as far as that sort of role with fourth-generation fighter technology, it's really good. Um, and if I think about some of the times I've, I've had the pleasure of maybe taking uh, a United States Air Force fighter pilot or a United States Navy fighter pilot and flying with them in the Canadian F-18, uh, they always walk away really, really impressed and, and raving about it. So it is my favorite. Uh, it's, it's very, very capable. Um, it's not the, the answer for the next, ten, you know, 10 years from now. I mean, fifth generation technology is here. Uh, but for the last little bit and for the next little bit, it, it really is an almost perfect fit. It's really good. We don't give it enough credit, in my humble opinion. Mm, that's that's interesting. And so if you, uh, Josh Kutrick, were to upgrade anything on this CF-18, uh, what would it be? Um, <laughs> that's a good question. Uh, I think it could do with some... So we spend a lot of time... Um, working on the weapon systems of the aircraft. And that's, uh, that's of course, the mo- from the perspective of, of a fighter pilot flying it in combat, that's the most important thing. Um, there are other upgrades that will be needed just to, to keep it uh, up to date insofar as sort of the domestic air transportation system. Now you need uh, specific equipment and certification to fly above uh, about 29,000 feet in most of Canada. It's something we call RVSM. That, that's the kind of thing that I think in the next few years would benefit the, the airplane because not you know we, we, we just drink too much gas below 29,000 feet. We really need to be above it. Um, and we, we will be above it when we're, we're flying operationally, but just in terms of getting around on a day-to-day basis, it would be nice to have. Um, and then I, I, would also, I might also add that I, at some point, um, your, your return on investment for upgrading an aircraft goes down as the age of the aircraft grows. So at some, time, at some point, you have to confront the issue, and we're, we're getting close to that point now, I would say, with fourth fight generation fighters in general, which is to say that the, the retur- you have a diminishing return on money spent on upgrading technology as compared to taking that money and spending it on new technology. Um, and so that's what well, the community will probably be dealing with in the next 10 years would be my guess. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, one thing I had in mind was uh, perhaps an upgrade to, to the radar and, and going from a mechanical over to a to an AESA. Based yeah, plan. absolutely. And that's that's a big one. So that that's a that's a whole order of magnitude above kind of the upgrades I was talking about. Uh, Yesa does does change everything, um, and I'm not in the community anymore, so I, I'm not an expert. But I'm I'm quite certain actually that Canada uh, is considering that as an option moving forward. So yeah, yeah, I would be very surprised if we weren't. Um, you didn't mention what your favorite aircraft is uh, outside of the one that you've flown. How about a paraglider? Oh, yeah. I, I've flown paragliders for a long time, and I I love flying paragliders <laughs> because 
uh, it is like flying at in the, the truest sense of flying. Uh, you do feel like a bird. You take away all the electronics and complexities, and, and you just have to be one with the air. Um, and I, I really find that to be a, a unique experience. So That's beautiful. I totally get it. We hope you are enjoying this episode of the Go Bold podcast. Please take a moment to like and subscribe so you don't miss any of our fabulous guests and topics. Now, back to our show. So what what opened the door for you to become an astronaut? Uh, per, per, opening the door for me to, to become an astronaut, I think personal interest uh, is among the most important because it, it's such a challenging and a long road that you have to have the interest and the passion there from from day one. And I, I feel fortunate to have had that. It's always been something on my mind. Uh, something that maybe I've kept close to myself because it doesn't. It matters to a point how much, how hard you work, and how interested and passionate you remain, and how well you do. Um, but you also, ha- I mean, you have to get lucky, and so there, there's definitely no guarantees that having a goal like that would ever be even possible. Um, there, there has to be luck involved. For me, the the first door opened in 2008 when the Canadian Space Agency. Uh, indicated that they were going to recruit two astronauts. I applied then. Um, I was encouraged to apply by my family and, and close friends. I really didn't think I had any chance. I was 26 years old. I was just starting to work for Rio as a fighter pilot. Uh, I only had one university degree, uh, barely any professional experience, and so I, I, I figured uh, my chances were zero. But my friends and, and family were, were insistent, and so I put my name in, um, and somehow I, I just started going with the selection process, and uh, I wasn't selected, uh, of course, but I did. I went to the final four applicants, so somehow over the course of a year, I ended up uh, one of four remaining people, and although I was quite disappointed to not get the job at the time, uh, it was a very good experience, and really importantly for me, it, it showed to me that this was something in my grasp. It was something that I could do uh, if I kept the dream alive. And so I went away a little bit disappointed, but but still pretty passionate about the whole thing. And I uh, carried on as a fighter pilot, became a test pilot, took a whole bunch of, of other university degrees, and then, uh, and then I kind of adopted the attitude that I was just going to try to be ready in case they selected again. Uh, because like I say, with the, the Canadian space program, there's, there's really no guarantees. Um, but I, I was fortunate in that sense. In 2016, they had another selection, so eight years after the first one. Um, I applied again, uh, really trying to, to manage my expectations carefully, uh, but I went through the, the process again successfully and was hired. Um, so for me, it was it was kind of a long road. It, it happened over two selection processes, both of those processes taking place over a, a year of testing. Um, so a lot of testing and a lot of work, and I just you know, I still feel very grateful and privileged for the fact that I have the job. Well, I, I, I'm excited for you, and I'm sure I'm sure the rest of Canada is as well, it, it, among other people beyond who's just fascinated with aerospace and and uh, and space exploration writ large. Yeah. Um, so you're now living in Houston. So what's what's it like living there and working at Johnson Space Center? Mm-hmm. Living in Houston and working at Johnson Space Center is a uh, it's a privilege. I mean, it, it really is because 
uh, of a couple reasons. For one, I'm, I'm representing Canada as a, as a very visible, not the only, but as a vi visible representative in uh, the really small and select field of human space exploration. Uh, and so it, it's, it's important to me to be able to do that well, and it's a point of pride for me to have the opportunity to do that at all. Um, it's also a privilege because I get to work at sort of the pointy end of this space exploration sphere. There's very few places in the world where people are actively involved every day in making human spaceflight happen, and probably the most significant place in the world uh, where that happens is JSC, where I go to work every day. So I get a front seat um, to the, the amazing people and the amazing teams there who are working every day uh, to make spaceflight possible. They're working every day uh, right now on the actual, you know, I see it every day, the actual hardware, software systems, rockets that are going to take humans to the moon uh, in this decade. I mean, just, just think about that. And they're also working on the very real hardware and systems, software, um, and processes that are going to take humans to Mars. The, the first humans to go to Mars are alive today. They're somewhere on planet Earth. Uh, they're, they're not probably not as old as I am. They're, I would guess they're in middle age maybe in, in uh, early school, but they are alive. And that's uh, that's just an awesome thing to think about and to be part of. I'm, I'm very proud for the fact that Canada's uh, space program has, you know, has a part to play amongst the space-faring nations of the world in human spaceflight, because there's not a lot of countries that do. Uh, I agree 100%. And so you're very well versed in, in the rigorous training from your previous career as a fighter pilot. So how does that training compare to the training that it takes to become an astronaut? Yeah, the, the training to be an astronaut uh, has a lot of similarities to military pilot training uh, because you're faced with a lot of operational training. Your space, like we were talking about before, there's a lot of uh, high-risk, high-consequence training uh, with very technical systems. There's a lot of training with those very technical systems in environments where uh, you can't make a mistake. If, if you make a mistake, the, the, you know, everything is off, it's mission failure, uh, there's a spaceship crashing, there's people dying, etc. So uh, there are similarities in terms of the environment, I would say. There's also a lot of differences because uh, with astronaut training, there's there's just a lot to know. The space station is the most complex system humankind has ever built. Um, it takes a, a lot of time. It takes a lot of studying to, to learn it to just even a basic level. Um, and furthermore, the job of being an astronaut is not just technical. It's not just operational. There's a lot more to it. And, and you know, some of the examples... Uh, we do technical training, of course, spacewalk training, systems training, uh, orbital mechanics training, robotics training, but we do a lot of things that aren't technical at all in nature. Learning Russian is, is something that's quite challenging um, and very different from many of the challenges that we face in the military. So uh, there's other things like expeditionary training, which is where we're really honing in on, on um, the the skills, and, and they are skills that need development and practice to be able to, to work in a small group in a very small and confined space for a really long time. Um, so there's uh, probably the best word to describe astronaut training is um, a large variety, I guess. Uh, so in terms of your training, uh, there's uh, now, I think it's affectionately known as a vomit comet, but uh, uh, there's a zero G training that, that I believe NASA astronauts do in uh, 
I think it used to be a 707. I'm not sure if that's changed to an Airbus platform now. Uh, but then there's also the training that you do in the neutral buoyancy pool. Yes. Um, how would you compare the two? Uh, because both are trying, like, I mean, obviously, you know, the, the zero G training that you do in the aircraft is, is, uh, very time limited. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There, there, uh, there's, there's a whole bunch there in that question. So this idea of training or familiarizing people with, uh, microgravity, uh, like you alluded to, we do it in, in a whole bunch of different ways. Actually, you talked about the neutropoiency laboratory, uh, the microgravity, uh, parabolic flight profiles. Um, and we, we actually at JSC also use other technologies. So we'll, we do runs with virtual reality systems. We do runs on systems where um, the best way for me to explain this is we're, we're hanging uh, by a, an extremely uh, smart and instrumented cable from the ceiling. And this cable is able to sense every force acting on our body and, and respond to it you know, through robotic systems to make it feel like we're in a zero gravity environment at the end of that cable. Um, and so we have a, a whole bunch of systems that are, we use to simulate the, the, the sort of um, environment that we see in orbit. Um, and we use them for different reasons. The Neutral Buoyancy Laboratory is not a perfect simulation of microgravity. Uh, they do a pretty good job. I mean, I've heard from colleagues who have gone to space and come back and done spacewalks there that they say it's so real that when they're out doing the real spacewalk, they, some of them find themselves looking for the bubbles because they feel as though they're still in that Neutral Buoyancy Lab in uh, Houston. Uh, so they do a really good job at simulating it, but they can't get all the way there because of the fact that we're in water. So we still have water resistance. We still have to sort of push against the water resistance when we're moving. Um, and so to sort of hone in on those small areas that we're not able to replicate perfectly in the neutral buoyancy environment, we go to airplanes and uh, we can actually put humans into real microgravity, zero gravity, uh, or free fall for uh, periods, the short periods, of course, 20 or 30 seconds. So you, in there you can sense the real sensation, but you're not going to do a full six or seven hour spacewalk like you would in the neutral buoyancy lab in Houston. Right. Uh, very interesting. So uh, now that you know or have a sense of what zero G is like, uh, what aspect, what specific aspect of being in space are you most looking forward to experience? And I'd, you know, that could be anything like, I mean, it could be smell, it could be, you know, just the feeling of weightlessness could be something else. Uh, yeah, I think um, for me personally, the, the, the part that I would most look forward to is just the, the idea of looking back and seeing the planet, not as we see it here, um, but as 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 one, you know, sphere by itself in the vast cosmos. That's something that I think is a, a pretty important uh, view to have uh, by astronauts, of course, but really by people here on Earth in general. And um, if I could ever, if I could ever see that for myself, I count myself as very lucky and privileged. Absolutely, absolutely. I'm very, very envious. Uh, so now that you're a graduate of NASA's basic training program, you know I'm certain that you're close to all of your astronaut classmates. But I'm curious, uh, other than the flag on your flight suit, how would you compare? or perhaps contrast a Canadian astronaut from an American one? That's a good question. And um, I, I think your comment with the, the flag is, is bang on, and I think it's important to, to make that point in that there, 
there doesn't there's not a lot of differences so if i we might tell people we're canadian they may see it on the little in in terms of the flag that we're wearing uh but most of the time we're not we don't wear a blue flight suit uh, down south in houston and so uh we're very integrated and it's an important point to make from the perspective of the value of this partnership that canada has right now with the united states and with nasa uh the canadian Astronaut Corps lives full-time in Houston. Um, you know, I have a child. He's, he was born there. He's American. So we, we moved to Houston, and we stay there, and we integrate fully in the NASA system at Johnson Space Center. Um, and so if you were to ask a, a bystander maybe on a tour inside JSC, they, they, they would not be able to discern the difference. That speaks to, to this partnership. Um, it's a partnership that we're very lucky to have. Uh, and, and to answer your, your actual question, I mean, I don't know that there's differences. There are practical differences when we get to implementing the program because, of course, Canada is a small nation. We don't fly in space as often as NASA does. Uh, our, our contributions are, are smaller. Uh, but in terms of the day-to-day, the day-to-day technical work and training that is done by astronauts at Johnson Space Center, uh, we really are fully integrated, and it, it's kind of all the same. Right, right. And so how does that collaboration work? Like, I mean, I'm not asking you to speak necessarily for the Canadian Space Agency and the the greater enterprise that it is, but uh, how does how does that collaboration work between CSA and NASA? And how are Canadian astronauts assigned missions? Yeah, it's, um, it's all uh, a money and a numbers and a a partnership uh, idea, I guess. So Canada makes very valuable contributions, like other international partners, to the day-to-day running of the International Space Station. We we built one of the a very important system on board that that is involved in everything. That's the the robotic system in Canada too, of course. Um, NASA depends on this every day to ensure the safety of astronauts on the station and to ensure the safety of the station itself. So Canada, that's our contribution. We contribute money uh, annually to to operate that system. And then uh, through a, a whole host of bargaining uh, arrangements, uh, or barters, I guess is how we technically talk to it, um, Canada is repaid for that in part by human space flights. And so every so often, uh, I, I'm not privy to the details, but based on our monetary contributions and our technology contributions, uh, we earn time on the International Space Station, and we that time is ours to use with the Canadian astronaut flight. So it's a it's an exchange. Uh, we get space flights in exchange for some of the things we contribute to NASA, um, and that's also the, the the model going forward. By the way, with Gateway and, and some of this push onto the moon and beyond. Right, right, and it kind of leads to my next couple of questions, which is, is there any specific mission that you would like to do, or have you been, been assigned a mission yet? Yeah, no, we're, Jenny and I are not assigned, and it's 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 really early. This is a, a really long road for us. We Before we would even be eligible for assignment, we still have a fair bit of training to do, um, even though we've kind of finished the, the basic astronaut training, there's still a bunch left to do. Um, and then it, it will depend on where the program sits and, and the path that Canada's space program kind of takes here in the next few years. Um, I'm quite optimistic. I think that we, we're in a good spot in terms of Canada's human spaceflight program. You're probably aware um, the government announced a, they became the first international partner 
uh, with NASA on the Gateway Project, which is building a orbiting outpost around the moon. Um, it's a very important part of putting humans back on the moon, and Canada is an important partner in that now. So. Jenny and I both, we can't tell you when our missions will come, but um, but we're confident that they will. And, and we do both share the belief that the, the future for, for human spaceflight in Canada is, is bright. Um, I hope that we continue to do what we've been doing on the ISS. And I also hope that we continue to stay with, partnered with NASA. I hope to, to go back and answer your question. Um, I don't know who it would be, but I hope that someday we have a, a Canadian um, descending to the lunar surface. And might not be in my time, might be, but, but someday it will happen if, if we keep partnering in the right ways. Well, it, you know, you kind of led my next question because that was, it, it was exactly what I was going to ask, which is there's obviously the Gateway program, as you referenced, and then uh, missions to Mars afterwards. But um, is the International Space Station likely the first stop for you? It's it's uh, it's really hard to say. Actually, we we're kind of entering this new this new world that we haven't been before, and, and that's the world where we have two big projects on the go. We I'm talking mostly about NASA, but we're they're about to enter a phase here where they're simultaneously uh, operating the International Space Station and launching missions uh, into the lunar vicinity. This, this is going to happen here in the next few years. And so it's a bright future, but it's, it's an uncharted and it's uh, maybe even an unpredictable one. It's really hard to say. Sure. So this may be an unfair question to you, uh, but do you have a particular rocket that holds interest to you? And by that, I'm referencing, obviously, the SpaceX rockets versus the ULA rockets. I'm sure either one of them would are absolutely fine. Uh, I don't know if there's anyone that holds a particular interest to you for any reason. Um, no, the, there's not. I mean, I think that if NASA certifies a rocket for spaceflight, it, it is, it's been certified by the most capable and knowledgeable spaceflight body on, on the, the surface of this planet. So when they uh, certify those vehicles, they'll, they'll be good and those rockets. Um, I think on a day-to-day -day basis right now, I, I might have more of an interest in the SpaceX side, uh, but that's purely a function of, of what I'm doing. I, I work as a Capcom with the International Space Station. I'm, I also do uh, simulations helping the mission control team that is involved with uh, the SpaceX side. And so I, I maybe have a bit more of a day-to-day -day interest in their operations, but um, nothing, nothing beyond that. Fantastic. So how would you counsel young people who may wish to follow in your footsteps? What advice would you give to them? Find uh, something that excites you more than anything else and try to find it early on. I, as I said at the start of this interview, I, I feel that I'm just very grateful for the fact that I found this dream of spaceflight, that I found that dream of exploring. Uh, exploring those interests in aviation uh, very, very early. They were things that were very motivating to me, and they shaped all the decisions I've made in my life, uh, per personally and professionally. So I think um, one of the, the best things you can do early in life is really be on the lookout for something, uh, the one thing that you're most interested in and can be most passionate about for your entire life. Absolutely. So what's next for you now? You mentioned that you're doing time as Capcom and, uh, and obviously, you know, you have more training to do. Uh, what is the, the path forward for Josh Kudrick and, and Jenny? Yeah, the, the next, 
probably three to five years is a mix of training and work. So we have a, a bunch of items called pre-assignment training items that we need to tick off here in the next few years. Some of those involves expeditions. Uh, I was in Italy doing a caves expedition, but I've been to Japan already training on, on their specific systems. I've been to Canada training on Canadian specific systems. So that kind of training will continue. Um, and then while we're in Houston, we're, we're working technical jobs uh, in a variety of different capacities. Right now, my time is largely split between supporting missions on the space station as a Capcom in mission control, um, supporting simulations and then also working uh, on some of the spacewalks that we're going to be doing um, with the onboard astronauts. And before those happen, uh, there's large engineering teams on the ground uh, with astronauts involved who write the procedures and, and we test them and we run them, uh, you know, tons and tons of, over and over and over in the neutral buoyancy lab. And I'm, I spend a lot of time helping out there. So it's very technical, very uh, applicable work and stuff that we just love to do. Fantastic. So, uh, Josh, what have I not asked you that you think it's important to kind of mention to, you know, whoever's interested, whoever's, you know, interested in aviation, aerospace, uh, space exploration, education? Uh... I think it's, it's important to make the point that, that Canada really does have a, particularly considering our size, uh, a very proud space history, uh, and we have a very bright space future, uh, especially with some of the investments that have been recently made. So I think that if you're interested in uh, working in the space sector at all, uh, including as an astronaut or as a scientist engineer, um, the timing has probably never been, been better. And I also like to, to make the point that um, for, in a lot of ways, the future is in space. I mean, exploring space and being part of the teams that go to space is not just important because it's nice to, to see astronauts do that. Uh, it's important to the future prosperity of Canadians, for sure. Uh, it's important to the future prosperity of everyone down here, uh, to, to be sure, as well. And so it's uh, it's an important cause, and it's a, it's an area of exploration that, that we have to go out into, uh, and it's one that's just uh, really limitless, I would say, right now, in terms of the opportunity uh, that we're going to come across when we do start pushing out beyond low Earth orbit. I can't ask you to speak for him, but... Uh... Could we see potentially your brother following in your footsteps? Yeah, I, I don't know. My brother's uh, in in his own sense also a, a very talented fighter pilot, and he's quite involved with the electronic warfare side of fighter pilot work, um, and I think that he's enjoying it immensely. So um, where he goes from there, I don't know. You Like you say, you probably have to ask him. But Yeah, I, and I, I will make that effort for sure. So, astronaut Josh Kutrick, it was a great pleasure to speak with you, sir. Thank you so much for your time to be here. And uh, we wish you the greatest success. And we'll eagerly watch as you slip uh, the surly bonds of our atmosphere on your way into space. Thank you for saying that. Um, of defense, aerospace, and particularly space flight are things that I love to talk about. So, I enjoyed the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you. The views and opinions expressed in this presentation are solely those of the participants. This podcast is copyright and all rights are reserved.
No portion may be reproduced or used in any manner without the express written permission of the publisher who can be reached at goboldthepodcast at gmail.com. The music on this podcast is Parasail by Silent Partner.